We're going to continue our worship through the study of the Word this morning. I love these days when we're Red Tree's feeling a little more social and i got to rally you guys back. Uh, before we get started, can I just take a quick second and, and brag on you as a church for a minute? Uh, I don't know if you guys noticed this really cool cross behind me. Did you guys see this? That's sick, right? That's sick. Uh, Nikki Mitchell made that. And, and Nikki Mitchell made that based off our logo, right? The little badge that's on the coffee mugs and stuff. There we go. That logo was designed by Jess Smith, who's a member of our church. I love Red Tree Church. I love the way you guys um, actually own this. This is a family, and we come together, and we do stuff. And that's really cool. It's just really, really cool. And now, because you know a member made it, you have to be really careful with it. If you're on breakdown team and you break that down, you have to answer to Zach. So, <laughs> uh, I will say, I, I have to jump in, but I've made this joke like four times and I have to share it with the rest of you. Watching Nikki come in bearing her cross this morning was a really big testimony. And I feel like the rest of you need to uh, go back to Jesus' words. He said, pick up your cross daily and bear it. So there we go. Um, I'm sorry. So we're in Colossians 2 today. We're continuing our series. Yeah, let's get past that. Uh, we're in Colossians chapter 2 today, continuing our series. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, we have Bibles in the end of each row house Bibles. If you don't own a physical copy of the Bible, we'd love for you to snag one of those or talk to one of our elders. We'd love to get you a copy. We really, really believe in the importance of of access to God's written word. So we're going to be in Colossians chapter 2 today. That's one of the really short books near the end uh, in the Old Testament in the middle, or the New Testament in the middle of the epistles, the, the shorter grouping of letters. Um, we're we're, we're going to jump in today uh, to this text where we're really going to finally get into uh, some, some of kind of the, the meat of the history and the culture surrounding this book. So before we read the text, I want to really quick remind us what's going on. So uh, the book of Colossians is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to this church in a city called Colossae, a church that he had never visited, a church that he had uh, didn't help found, but he heard through their pastor that they were struggling with heresy, that they had been led astray by this syncretistic heresy, and we're going to talk about that very specifically today. And so he wrote this letter appealing for them uh, to return to the one true gospel that they heard from the beginning. And so the message of this book over and over and over and over has been Christ is sufficient He is above all. He reigns. His work, his person, they are complete. In Christ, you are lacking nothing. Why would you try and add to the work Christ has done on your behalf? And we got last week to this, these two verses at the beginning of chapter two. This is verses six and seven. I'm going to reread them to you. This is Colossians 2, six and seven. It says, therefore, As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. I said this last week, but this, like this, if if you don't, if you don't grab a hold of anything else in the book of Colossians, this is the verse to memorize. 
This is, uh, Colossians 2, 6, and 7 is the thesis of the entire book. This is the message Paul is stating to this church. What you have in Christ is sufficient, and you have received it. You don't need anything else. So walk in that. Walk in what you have received. Be rooted in Him. Have have faith in Him. Be established in Him, just as you were taught. You don't need to add to it and, and be grateful. I love that part in the end. But this is kind of where we're at in the book, is, is Paul has moved to this place where he's been presenting uh, this truth, this positive argument, the sufficiency of Jesus over and over. He's explained it in multiple different ways in multiple passages, and he's finally moved to the section where he is addressing plainly his heretical opponents within the Colossian church. So in our text last week, he said, listen, do this, walk in Christ as you've received him, because I don't want you to be deceived. I don't want you to be taken captive by stuff that is lesser, right? And he, and he names kind of some of these different areas of thought and worldview and philosophy that he thinks can take us captive. And then once again, he moves into the sufficiency of Jesus. The way, uh, the, the, this is like verses uh, 5 through 15, he goes back into going, don't be taken captive by this stuff because it's, it's, it's so lesser next to Christ. It's, it's incomparable. Christ is your life. He is your righteousness. He is your faith. And he goes, goes through all these things, and the text ends. I love this. It ends in in verse 14 where he goes, Jesus took your sin and your guilt, and he defeated it. He nailed it to the cross. It is dead. It is gone. He triumphed over everything. The spirits and authorities and evil and curse of this world, Christ put them to shame. He embarrassed them with his glory and his power and his victory. I love that image. It's reminiscent of Jesus, his own words in Mark 3, right? When he compares Satan to this strong man who's guarding his house, right? And he says, he's strong, but I'm stronger. So I'm just going to march into the house and I'm going to tie him up and I'm going to take whatever the heck I want and he won't be able to do anything about it. He talks about his power and his sufficiency just to say, Satan and his authority over this world, the curse, the effects of sin, it can't speak over me. can't take what it wants from me. I am God. I conquer. I own this. I have victory. And that leads us into our text today. Come on. So we're going to be in Colossians 2, 16 today. And I'd like to pray for us before we jump into this text. Jesus, thank you so much for the gift of your word. You are so good to us, God. This morning as we sang and as we prayed and as we just spent this time together, God, I was just so reminded of the joy that is life and family in you. You are so good to us, God. Thank you that we are not left on our own to try and figure out this world and figure out faith and figure out you, but you have given us your word. You have given us your church and so that we get to come together as family and hear from you. Holy Spirit, be our interpreter and our discipler today. 
Teach us from your word. Illuminate its truth to us. Convict us of our sin. Remind us of things we've forgotten and teach us new truths about you. We love you, Jesus. And we, we trust you for these things. So we pray them expectantly in your name. Amen. So, the 16th verse of the second chapter of the letter to the Colossians tells us this. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. It is with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world. Why, if you are still alive in the world, do you submit to its regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. If then you've been raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is the word of the Lord. What a stinking text. What I'd like to do for us today is essentially the same thing we do every time we meet. I want us to take a few minutes and, and, and kind of step back so we can hear the larger message Paul is speaking here in this text. There's, there's a lot, right? Like Paul writes in this way where he just doesn't waste any words. He packs so much meaning into small little paragraphs that sometimes it's really hard to step back from these like individual, just like tweetable bombs that he's speaking and see like the, the, the larger message of the text. So we're going to step back and try and give ourselves some clarity on the, the flow of what Paul's saying here, and I think that'll lead us to a very specific truth. We're going to look at a text from a story, actually, from 1 Kings that I think will wrap us around to what God has for us today, and we'll end our time in response through communion. Sound good? Awesome. So what's Paul saying here? Our text starts with a therefore. As, as a mentor of mine back when I was a youth pastor used to say, in the scripture when you see a therefore, you have to stop and step back and see what it's there for. I'm sorry, but it's true. It's a good, it's a good reminder, right? So, so his, our first verse here says, therefore let no one pass judgment on you. Well, why is no one to pass judgment on you? Look at the last 10 verses. Because of Christ. 
because of his sufficiency, because of his finished and complete work on your behalf. No one can pass judgment on you. This hearkens us back to chapter 1, verse 12, that says, give, give joy, joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. Beloved, God has qualified us. So who can unqualify us? Because of the sufficiency of the person and work of Jesus on our behalf, you have been qualified. So who has the authority to unqualify you? Who, who can pass judgment on you in, in matters of regulations? Especially by something as petty as a festival. I mean, Guys, look at those previous verses. Jesus was able to take your sin and your debt and kill it. What food regulation has more authority than that cosmic power? Amen? So, in this section, as Paul basically just sets aside the arguments of his opponents as foolish out of the get-go, he finally gets to a place where he names the specifics of what this church is struggling with. And we've said this several times, that the Colossians are dealing with this syncretistic heresy. Syncretism is a mixture of varying and opposing worldviews that come together to create a totally new worldview. So, so you need to hear that, right? You, you, you smorgasbord, you go to the philosophical and theological buffet, and you grab all the pieces you like and create your own meal that is so distorted from the original pieces from which you took it that it's, it's, not, it's not able to be connected to those. It's its own unique thing. So what we see is that what the Colossian church is dealing with here is a mixture of the Christian gospel they've been given some very strict, like, mainline Jewish practices, as well as some Roman mystery theology. And this is a thing, basically, like, what we know of this, uh, of kind of the, the state of the philosophy and religion of some of the secularized or more progressive Roman world, we can, we can infer a, a lot of detail about what's going on here. And there is discussion about this. I'm not going to tell you that this is just something where it's like, ah, oh, they said these words so we know exactly what it was, because this was something contextual to this church and this city and this community that a group of people just made up. And so we don't have a way of like narrowing it down to the T, but what we know of that time in history and culture, we can infer most of this, right? So, it's important to note that we're talking about some Jewish practices that have been imposed on this church, but this is not talking about the Judaizers, which if you're like totally lost right now, I'm sorry, you just got to follow me for a couple minutes of theology. It'll get us there, I promise. So, if you read through the history of the early church, especially in a book like Acts, you'll read about one of the first theological divides in the church, which was the progressive church or uh, uh, versus the conservative church, which is usually how it goes down. And the conservative Christian church was represented by these Judaizers, these folks who were Jewish first and then became Christian, and they said, look, Gentiles, if you want to be Christian, that's cool. We get it. You know, Jesus loves everybody, but listen, we had to go be Jewish first, so you also need to be Jewish first. 
You need to do all the things required to convert to Judaism. And even as you become a believer, you're going to have to follow those Jewish traditions. The very first ecumenical council or church council was convened to discuss this doctrinal issue. It's called the Jerusalem Council. And leaders from the various churches came together and sat down and said, A, can non-Jews be Christians? And they were like, yes, we, we all affirm that. We see the Holy Spirit working and saving people who are not Jewish. B, do those Gentile Christians have to follow the Jewish law? And they sat down and they prayed and they studied the scripture and they asked the Lord and they said, no, no, they do not. And they actually wrote down a couple specific things they wanted the Jewish Christians to be aware of, ethical practices that are taught by the Old Testament. But they said, ultimately, you are not bound by the law. There were certain sects within Judaism and within Christianity that were not pleased with this decision. And so they chased after the church, trying to inject Jewish practices into the Christian church as necessary for obtaining salvation. These Judaizers would come along and say, hello, 35-year-old man who just accepted Christ. Welcome to, welcome to the faith. You know, it's this whole thing. You're saved by faith. It's really cool. Uh, you need to get circumcised. That's the next thing. And they would step back and go, I'm sorry, say that again? <laughs> sorry, what, that, that wasn't in the pamphlet I read that Paul gave me. Uh, <laughs> But this was what was going on. These restrictions surrounding food laws and feast days and festivals and Sabbaths and all of these things. We are not talking about that. It's important to differentiate that the heretics in the Colossian church were not Judaizers. They were taking some Jewish practices that they knew were disciplined. And it's important to differentiate because this is not the Jewish law they're asking of this church. They're asking more than the Jewish law. The reason is because this, what, what Paul tells us a little later, and what we can infer from what we know about some of these Roman wisdom cults and things of that nature, is that most likely what happened is a group of people experienced what they believed to be divine visions or dreams. And they believed that by taking on certain ascetic disciplines, right, beat the bodies, physical discipline, that they could control and invoke more of those visions and dreams, and that experiencing those things gave them deeper spiritual knowledge and deeper and higher levels of holiness and higher levels of Christianity. And so they had gone to the church and said, you should live like this. You should be hyper-disciplined and, and beat your body and make it your slave and experience all these things because that will make you more likely to have these visions. And when you get these visions, that's how you learn the real truth. Like, I know you guys heard the gospel, you heard about Jesus, you heard about his sacrifice, that's cool, but wait till you get, like, that's level one. Wait till you get to Christianity level two. At level two, you get to worship angels and it's really cool. And they kept saying, if you can do these disciplines, you will become more holy. You will obtain higher levels of salvation. This um, obviously is not true. This is the problem. And so these Jewish practices have nothing to do with what the Torah teaches about holiness and being set apart for God. They're simply disciplines. Observe these days. Don't eat these foods. Don't drink these drinks. By the way, there are no Jewish laws against what you can and can't drink in the Torah. They're adding to that, right? Don't do this, do that, don't do this. By being this disciplined, you will be more likely to receive these visions. Now, 
I think this part is really important for us. These guys have, or I say guys, these folk within the church have taken practices and mixed them together from varying sources to such an extent that what they are holding on to is no longer Christianity. And it's important to see that. Paul is very, very concerned for this church. It's why he writes this letter. It's why he structures it the way it, he does. What you are teaching Colossian church is no longer the gospel. And it concerns me. But he says something really beautiful and really frightening. He uses this image where he talks about these guys, how these teachers are puffed up. They've become conceited, that, that their spiritual experiences have made them feel over and above and pride and separate, even though they're wrong. And he uses this image where he says, they are no longer taking hold of the head, Christ, who is their nourishment, who is their spiritual life. It's an interesting phrase. It's an interesting phrase because what Paul is saying in that is that he sees these false teachers as fallen brothers in the faith. You see, Paul deals with false teachers from outside the church multiple times throughout his ministry. What he calls wolves who come in to kill, to destroy, to take away the weak. And he deals with them very bluntly, very harshly. He has no patience for wolves attacking God's flock. But with these false teachers, he is concerned for their repentance. He sees that they have strayed, and he's warning them to return before it is too late. That's an important distinction. And the reason is this. Paul is telling us that this sort of syncretistic temptation is a reality within the church. This is the temptation that arises within the fold. We can all do this. We can walk down this road of adding this and a little of that into the gospel until we lose the gospel. These teachers can do it. This church can do it. Beloved Red Tree Church can do this. You can do this. Do not be deceived into somehow thinking that you are more wise and aware than your Colossian brothers and sisters. C.S. Lewis has this brilliant bit where he talks about chronological snobbery. And he talks about how we are predisposed to only read things written in the last 10 to 15 years because we assume that whoever's the newest is also the smartest. And he has this brilliant thing where he talks about when you read old authors and old theologians, you can so easily see through the holes in their logic and you're, you're just able to be dismissive and be like, those fools, how could they not see this? And, and then he just basically gently reminds and says, uh, if they were to read your journal, they would have the same thoughts. It, it is not by reading, it's not, he says, it's not by reading multiple authors that you, you somehow obtain a perfection as though older authors were wiser than you or you were wiser than older authors. He goes, it's just that you have different areas of foolishness. You're foolish about different things. And so when you vary your reading, you cover a wider net to hopefully find people who will see through your blind spots and call you to account. Beloved, this is why a book like Colossians is so vital for us. 
I'm pretty certain if someone came in here and offered us the Colossian heresy, we would all go, I don't think that's how it works, man. (laughs) I went through a roots class. That's not how it works. (laughs) I'm pretty sure we'd be able to see through that pretty quickly. But that does not mean that we are somehow immune to this temptation. The temptation to see Christ as insufficient and to take beautiful tools handed to us in order to build up godliness and righteousness and somehow put those on the same level as our Savior and make tools into masters. That temptation exists here and it exists in you and it exists in me. And we ignore that to our danger. He, uh, he tells us exactly why this is so tempting and dangerous on a side note. Well, let me read this to you. This is starting in verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? If you receive salvation in Christ and you know the gospel, you heard it, you know he's sufficient, why are you acting like he isn't? 21. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch referring to things that all perish as they are used. Stuff. Stuff of this world. Stuff that Jesus said wrath and moth and rust will destroy. According to human precepts and teachings. Verse 23, hear this. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But they are of no value stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Do you see this? Do you see what he's saying here? He's he's saying, what are you doing? What are you doing? You know Christ is sufficient. Why why is this appealing to you? Well, I know why it's appealing to you. Because it looks good. It looks wise. It looks better. It is enticing. Beloved, we're we're tempted to syncretism, syncretism, to incorporating more and adding onto Christ because we look at the lies and the philosophies and the tools and all the things in front of us and we go, that looks good and beneficial. Right? If someone busted out a box of rat poison and said, would you like some sprinklings for your pizza tonight? You wouldn't, you wouldn't be interested because you would go, that appears definitely to be rat poison. <laughs> I don't think that's a good topping, right? But they appear good. They appear beneficial. And in fact, hear this, a lot of them are good and beneficial. Think about the law, the, old, the Torah law. Think about Sabbath. Think about the feast days. These are beautiful gifts from God. If you go and you participate in the Sabbath, it will draw you to the truth of the gospel. It is a gift from him. Jesus himself said, the Sabbath was made for you. These things are gifts. They're wonderful tools. They are beautiful. They are wise. They're terrible masters. Terrible saviors. And to put them in the seat that only belongs to Christ to put yourself at peril. He even says this, he ends it with this, and I love this piece. They're of no value 
in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. You see, this is the lie (laughs) that we buy. These beautiful tools, these practices, you can be the most self-disciplined person on earth and have a heart that is totally prideful, with walls that are up, that has no humility and no submission to Christ. You can have really, a really spiritually disciplined heart that is dead in its sin and transgressions. Look at the Pharisees. They could not have been more spiritual, more disciplined. And Christ said, you are a painted casket. You are shiny on the outside, and inside you are dead and rotting bones. What good is a paint job on a casket? What good is that? It doesn't do anything except make something dead look pretty. This is the thing we have to mess with. We have to deal with this reality in our heart. He he goes on in the text and he says, listen, listen, listen. That stuff, it's not going to get you there. It's not, it's a, the tools are terrible masters. It's not going to get you to this place of holiness that you think it will. Do stop putting your heart on things of this earth. Just stop. Stop giving them your heart. Put your heart with Christ. Set your mind on the things that are above. These are the words of Jesus, right? Do not store up treasures for yourself on on earth where moth and rust destroy, but store up treasures in heaven, which are eternal. Paul says, Christ has done this work for you. He has killed your sin. He has destroyed the curse and humiliated Satan, and he has bought you, so dwell in him. Give him your mind and your heart. Look forward to eternity with him. I I love this piece. He calls calls the Jewish laws a shadow, a shadow. But Christ is the substance. Beloved, these, these practices, these Spiritual disciplines, these regulations can be beautiful tools to draw us to Christ. But to try and grasp them as of some sort of inherent value on their own is to love a shadow more than the person casting the shadow. It is foolish. Sabbath is a gift from God, not because you need a day off. Sabbath is a gift from God because Christ died on the cross and defeated death and sin and the curse, and he stands at the right hand of God with his work finished and completed, and he is drawing you into an eternal Sabbath with him, where your labor will no longer be in vain, where your work will no longer be toil, and you will live in Sabbath rest and worship for eternity with your Savior. So when you Sabbath here, it's a day off. It's a time to experience worship. But it's a time to be reminded and set your heart upon that truth and that promise. Come on. It's a shadow. It points you to the substance. Paul's message is simple. And I feel like I've said this every week, and we're probably just going to keep saying this until we're done with Colossians. Jesus is sufficient. Don't add anything else. (laughs) That's it. Jesus is sufficient. So what do we do with this? Turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 16. 
I'm going to read you a really short story from the Old Testament to illustrate what I'm talking about and illustrate this danger. 1 Kings is on the other, like other end of your Bible. 1 Kings 16, starting in verse 29, we read this. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, the king of the Sidonians, and he went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. The end. What a terrible story. Uh, I don't know how entrenched you are in some of the Old Testament histories, but to bring you up to speed really quickly, Ahab was a king of Israel after Israel's civil war that split it into two countries. So after King Solomon, uh, Israel suffered a terrible civil war that split it into the northern kingdom of Israel with its capital in Samaria and the southern king of Judah with its capital in Jerusalem. Ahab was one of the kings of northern Israel, and by all accounts, he is easily amongst the worst kings to reign over Israel. You can keep reading this story. Uh, like verse, or chapter 18 is one of like the coolest stories in the Old Testament where like one of the lone last prophets of God like stands up um, against his evil authority and the things he's doing to Israel. It's really cool. But for our purposes, you need to know this. Ahab was bad. And the reason he was bad is this. He took God's covenant people who had made a covenant with God at Sinai to worship him and him alone forever and eternity, to be a dwelling place for God, to be known amongst the nations. He took those people and that land and he said, yeah, but we need some Baal in here and we need some Asherah. And so he built a temple to Baal and an altar to Baal in his capital city. And he built uh, an altar to Asherah in his capital city. Baal and Asherah were two of the gods of the surrounding Canaanite people. Now, we look at stuff like that, and it's very dismissive for us, right? We, we see that and we're like, dang, what an idiot. Did he not like read Leviticus? And in reality, it's like, did, did we read Leviticus? <laughs> right? But we, we sit back and we go, what, what an idiot. He, he has access to his history. Like God shows up and does miracle stuff. Why would you, is this statue really that pretty? Like what's the deal going on here? But the problem is we miss some of the cultural context here. You see, God had commanded his people at Sinai to worship him and him alone above all other gods. Because of the value of hindsight, we're able to look back on that and we're able to realize that God is referring to monotheism, right? He is God and no one else is God and there are no other gods. There is God, the one true God of all the universe, the, the sovereign creator and sustainer of reality, and that's it. That's not a foregone conclusion for most of the people in the Old Testament. 
In fact, it's much more likely that a guy like Ahab would be brought up and reminded of the covenant of his people, and what he would hear from that is, our God doesn't want us to worship any of the other gods because he's our God, and he's super cool, and he has part of our history, and he frees slaves from slavery, so we should honor that. Those other gods are other people's gods, but God is our God. So they were exclusive, but they weren't necessarily monotheists, and that's important. Because Ahab is not a fool. He's not an idiot. He was incredibly educated, and he led a nation. <laughs> he had to know a couple things about a couple things, right? The reason he led Israel into this terrible, awful, syncretistic heresy that ultimately resulted in their complete destruction as a people, where God removed his blessing and destroyed the institution of Israel, and the tribes that were represented by Ahab's kingdom ceased to exist. The reason Ahab took them down that road is because he loved his country and he wondered what was best for it. And that should terrify you. <laughs> Think about this for a moment. Israel is an agricultural nation. You know how they survive? Good crops and lots of sheep and lots of goats. And if you're an agricultural nation and you need lots of crops and lots of sheep and lots of goats and lots of healthy kids to run your farms and take care of the sheep and the goats and harvest the wheat and the grain, then you need lots of rain and you need lots of fertility. Guess what Baal and Asherah were? Baal was the god of agriculture. He was the god who controlled the rains. He's the God who brought good crops, who controlled the clouds, who decided when and where rain fell, and Asherah was the goddess of fertility. She brought about many strong sons and lots of healthy goats and sheep. And so Ahab sits back and he goes, look, I know we have this covenant thing, but that's like hundreds of stinking years old. I've never been a slave. You've never been a slave. We're the ones who have slaves now, right? So we need to think about this for a minute. We need good crops, and we need big flocks, and we need lots of children. I don't see God talking about that stuff much. But Bell and Asher talk about that stuff a lot. So let's just bring this together. We can still worship God. We'll still have our little temple thing, right? All the people in the south, they say we're heretics anyway since we're not going to the temple in Jerusalem. So is this really even any worse than what they're already saying about us? Like, we'll still continue to worship in our high places, and you guys can offer to Yahweh, and that's cool. And we'll still have priests, and the prophets can do their deal, I guess. But here's the thing, guys. We need rain, and we need kids. So let's make sure we worship Baal and Asherah alongside Yahweh. Sound good? And Israel said, sure, why not? Guys, we got to think about that for a minute. This is a travesty. That this man was so deceived that he led his entire people down a pathway to complete and utter destruction. And the reason he did it is because in the moment, it seemed really wise. It seemed really smart. And it seemed like good stewardship of his kingdom. That's intense. Which brings us to today. We all have a syncretistic temptation. It sits in front of us. Stuff tempts us. Good, awesome tools that God has handed us sit in front of us and they say, this will make your life, your faith, your theology, your holiness 
more. All sorts of things, guys. Your political affiliation, your specific, your specific branch of theology, your thoughts concerning family, your spiritual disciplines, and all sorts of other things, right, that are evil. But there are lots of good things, good tools that God has handed us that tempt us to just, just mix them into the pot and make them part of the deal. But think about how dangerous that is. Think about, for instance, your political convictions. And you begin to syncretize those with your theology of Christ and his finished and complete work. And all of a sudden you step back and you're thinking about the welfare of your nation and the blessing of your people. And you look at certain people and, and you go, now listen, listen, you may say you love Christ, but if you support this or you vote for that or you do this, I don't know if I can affirm that in you. You ought to be careful with that. You ought to be careful with with combining a political party membership or certain voting history or a certain social structure stance with the sufficiency of the completed work of Jesus Christ. Now, don't hear me saying you should be apolitical. I picked this as an example because I knew it would make the most people upset in the room. (laughs) Don't hear me saying you should be apolitical. Politics is a great tool. It's a great tool. It's a great tool for your faith to have feet, for you to get out and actually live out the convictions Christ has given you. I actually think you should be politically involved in a nation like ours. But you better be careful that that tool does not become your master. And you do not begin to stand in judgment over another man's servant and determine the character and sufficiency and completeness of someone else's faith and someone else's salvation based on where they fall on your political conviction. You better be careful. Because politics is a great tool. It's a terrible master terrible master. I love our country as, next, as much as the next guy. Seriously. It was great. I'd rather be here than most places. <laughs> but man, it's not Jesus. And you know what? I won't be a citizen of the United States for eternity. I'll be a citizen of heaven for eternity with my Savior who bought me that citizenship with his blood shed on the cross. I'm telling you guys, that is way better than my political convictions. Reapply that to any and everything you can in our culture. Put that, put that in the lens of your theological convictions, right, and open-handed doctrines, of your social stances. Put that in the realm of a million different things. What it comes down to is this. In John 14, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Beloved, Jesus Christ qualifies you. No one and nothing else has that authority and that power. Jesus Christ, your Lord, your Savior, the lover of your soul, his person and his completed work has bought you. Nothing else has done that. And let's not pretend that it does. Again, 
I'm not telling you to cast your worldview aside and be indifferent towards society or this nation or this structure or this theology. Those things are beautiful. Just like I'll go to bat for the importance of Sabbath. I'll go to bat for the importance of political engagement. But man, don't fall into that temptation, beloved. Don't, don't buy into, don't be taken captive by a man-made philosophy. I'm going to do this. I'm going to end our time and give some space for us to sit in prayer. And the reason I'm going to do this is because if I'm being totally blunt, I believe we are in danger of this temptation, of this heresy. I believe it is crouching at our door. I think it would be good in a space like this, having read a text like this, to sit for a few minutes with Jesus and consider the sin of Ahab and consider the heart that in the moment thought it was being wise and thought it was doing what was right and yet it missed the love and plan and presence of the eternal God. So I would like to invite you guys to spend a few minutes in prayer. We'll have some prayer counselors up about uh, Mike and Michelle will be available if you guys want to stand up so people can see you. You can come find one of them. You can come grab me or one of the elders. We'd love to be able to pray with you for a couple minutes. But I just want to encourage you guys to take a few minutes to find some space for you to be with Jesus. If you can do that in your seat where you're sitting, that's awesome. If you need to get up and go get on your knees somewhere, if you need to just have a couple seats of blank space between you and someone else, whatever you need to do, that's fine. Let's take a few minutes for us to be with Jesus, for us to reflect on his sufficiency. Maybe even ask the Holy Spirit to shine a spotlight on the temptations to syncretism we have. Now, I named one example, right? And there's so many things, so many good things that we grab a hold of and try and put them as equal to the lover of our soul. And we are most of the time blind to it because they appear wise. So ask the Holy Spirit to shine a spotlight on that. Ask the people in your community to shine a spotlight on that. Be in that for a few minutes. And then I'll close out our time in prayer and we can sing a song together. But beloved, take a few minutes and do the work you need to do with Jesus.